happening now. We want to welcome our listeners from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director at the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And this is episode 53 of the EdTech Situation Room. And joining me as always, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you this evening? I am doing wonderful and glad to join you from beautiful Oklahoma City, where I'm the director of technology for the Cassidy School, and it is a wonderful night, and I almost uh, just put the headphones on outside, but it would get a little bit dark, but uh, very pleasant spring weather here without uh, severe weather right now, so yay. Yep, the same here as well. And in fact, um, the we've gone from, like, there was literally snow on the ground here last week to yesterday. Uh, it was 78 degrees was the high. So we Montana has very diverse weather. So it's one of our uh, strengths and also one of our bewilder, bewilderments. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I... Uh... Uh, you know, could can't apologize for the links, but I think this might set a record for for a number of links we you know may end up talking about. Uh, you know, less than a fourth of them. Who knows? Now, is that a cat or is that a human being? Uh, that is a cat. So stash the cat, <laughs> who kind of has been going in and out of good health, um, um, is uh, getting a little more demanding. So I'm I'm sure that if I just you know put her up here then she'll be good to go. So um, Stash joining us live, uh, as she sometimes does. So That's hello, good. Stash. Hey, and your microphone issues seem to have been, you know, completely resolved. So are, are you now uh, sporting some new hardware, or uh, what's, what's the secret sauce there? Whoa. Uh, you, you froze for a second, but now you're back. Am I okay? Yeah, I, you're okay. I wonder if... <laughs> Of course, this is probably my bandwidth issues. It's funny you should mention my microphone, and then something else ultimately goes wrong. So, um, yeah. So I think we're just testing firm at this point. So let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, Wes, where should we start tonight? Well, I think we need to go back to Google I/O because last week we okay. we talked the most about it. Um, in tonight's uh, show, just to kind of preview, and uh, if we get get some live viewers and you want to tell us which ones you'd like to go to, I we kind of organized them tonight under uh, the subtopics: genomics, biotech, fake news, critical thinking, AI, more Google I/O, hacking security, the sky is falling, Microsoft and Apple media information and free this week in space. So, uh, but Google I.O., I had not watched any of, of the keynote uh, before our, our show last time and did watch the keynote. And I've also watched a few other show of, of the, um, you know, broadcast videos uh, via Apple TV, you know, YouTube and, and that channel. And so um, I just really was inspired, and um, I guess the first article I'll talk about was from Wired. Uh, this was on May 19th, 2017, Google's perfect future will always be just around the corner. And the article is actually a bit of a whine saying, hey, Google, you know, we need products, not, you know, just all these ideas and, and these platforms. This is the developer conference, right? This isn't the conference to say, hey, come and buy all our stuff. And so um, this article, which is by, let's see, Pierce, David Pierce, um, you know, my, my main response to it is, yeah, there's a lot of amazing technology here. And what Google is is really inviting developers to do is to help them invent the future. So right. I... 
I found myself really inspired, and I did go down a bit of a rabbit hole. The first opening scene of the keynote is a very cool animation. <laughs> it's uh, it, I, I wrote a blog post actually. I used Shazam on my on my iPhone to figure out who who that artist was. Um, and it's really the story of launching your idea and you know going up the mountain and um, uh, facing you know challenges and not being able to make it by yourself and having to collaborate with others, etc. So let's see, Jerry, I think it's Mungo Jerry. I thought they just his name. This is like a 1973 song. Never heard of this guy. We're talking about the. Biggest like beard and just 70s, you know, do ever. Uh, and I've been playing that song all week on my phone and pretty much irritating everyone in my family. So how are you a week after IO, Jason? Uh, still inspired? And uh, any any thoughts, you know, reflecting a week, a week after the big announcements? Well, I, I think that for me, uh, the most interesting piece of this is that that, and I, I don't disagree with the article that says that 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 uh, you know we, we do need products, but I totally agree with you, Wes, that that's what the developers are for, and what Google's been super great at in the last um, you know uh, ten years in particular is they develop uh, platforms that people build products on top of that turn into wonderfully successful consumer products. Witness, you know, the world's most popular cell phone, the Android cell phone. It's based on their open source operating system that people will. Gladly agree to restrictions on the open source license to get the Google um, applications on the phones, um, and they've been able to you know spread them out far and wide. And I you know I'm I'm an Android user. I like my hundred and sixty dollar phone. I've picked up from Amazon. It's a great buy. It's a great phone. It's a great platform. And so I see the products in regards to that. But the thing that I thought was most interesting is that it's really clear that. Uh, Google, but I think it's true of Microsoft. I also think it's true of, 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 of Apple that we're clearly heading the direction of artificially intelligent devices that are in our lives, whether we're ready for it or not. And, uh, they're going to become smarter and smarter and smarter. Um, uh, as you know, the devices figure out ways to help us appropriately. And I'll give you a very specific example of this. One of the announcements that was pretty small um, was that Google uh, was going to roll out uh, automatic answers for emails um, in uh, their apps. The idea being that um, uh, you can uh, needs to be in their their mailbox app um, um that they, um, <laughs> I'm articulating, that they used to have it in their mailbox app, which was a separate email or application you could download in, that in, reinvented. In, in, inbox, yeah. Okay, yeah, thank you. And um, the automatic reply or the, the AI-generated replies was something that was in that particular application. But as it turns out, that's now available um, in all of, of Google's Gmail applications. And it's a super interesting concept, but uh, it really didn't mean anything to me until I started opening up emails uh, one morning on my phone, and it started appearing at the bottom, there were four or five uh, 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 seemingly, uh, you know, innocent uh, uh, responses there. And what I've noticed over the last week since that started to occur is not only do those responses sound like me, right? Like they're using phrases and they're using methods that I would use to respond to things. They are almost um, more often than not um, 
uh, like correct, right? Like these would be things that I would say in response to, to those particular pieces. And that's a very interesting preview on our relatively near future with, you know, uh, the internet of things and devices starting to wiggle their way into more and more and more and more and more of our lives that we may be able to help tackle the, the, the email problem, but also be more efficient in communication and connection when AI can help us in that way. Now that doesn't mean it doesn't inspire massive numbers of, of questions and, 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 and questions of ethics and that sort of thing. But it's, it's a very interesting concept. And I think that simple, um, uh, tool can give you a, a sense of maybe where we're going here, um, uh, with Google, uh, and these sets of tools. Absolutely. And I, um, I would say that dealing with large quantities of email effectively is one of the number one needs of our administrators at our school. Help with that. That's something I'm about to do a professional development survey to find out what kinds of things folks would like to learn this summer. And our uh, upper division head, who's, who's our high school principal, you know, just had mentioned that to me a week or so ago that he just – he gets about 80 to 90 emails a day and just really, um, you know, would, would love and benefit from strategies and tips and tools that will help him, you know, deal with that. So I, I am fascinated by that. I also think that it raises an issue about the benefits of Google keeping this history. Um, ben Wilkoff last week recommended this Contra Fabulists podcast, which I actually listened to their the latest episode. It's Audrey Waters and Ken Lane. And you can go back to our last episode, episode 52, if you want to get that link in the Geeks of the Week uh, for Ben. And one of the things that Audrey says in that was, you know, she's going in and deleting all her history and deleting all this old email. I went to a session at this Atlas conference about a month ago in Burbank, California, where some schools were talking about their retention policies and liability and student information. And in one case, the school actually is on a rolling delete of all data uh, in email that is a year that is over a year old. Well, you know, this kind of thing about Google being able to learn from us and then being able to provide, you know, really helpful responses. Personally, I'm really excited about that. I think as long as Google is continuing to give us the power to be aware of what's being collected and take control over it. I mean, if Audrey and other people want to delete all their old, you know, email and web history and YouTube history, that's okay. But I am learning more now because of recommended videos on YouTube and it's phenomenal. Like YouTube knows I'm really interested in AI because I've watched the videos fully and I know it tracks how long you watch them. I like those. I subscribe to the channels. I mean, I am a beneficiary today of AI. So this doesn't, this doesn't scare me. It, it excites me. Sure. Absolutely. Um, what, what, what else uh, from the Google um, uh, keynote uh, piqued your interest, Wes? Well, uh, definitely the Google Assistant, right? And this is, and I've downloaded it on my phone, but I don't, I, I really only played with it a little bit, or I tried to, and it wouldn't, I don't know if it was trying to, to get going or whatever, but um, there's, there, I've seen some reviews where it's, at this point, not that much better than Siri, but this is the real early days, right? I mean, launching that app and saying, wow, it sucks. It can't do anything more than, than um, uh, Siri. I think, you know, we're at early days, and, and this also has to do with where we're going to invest, what ecosystem we're going to invest in, and what we're going to be trusting. So right. I, I am in, a, you know, feed in both worlds sort of thing with, with my iPhone, MacBook, you know, iPad. 
um, but heavily invested in Google on my personal side as, as far as websites and, and email and, and then at school as well. So right. I, I look forward to the just like here's here's the the ed tech and school connection, right? Because that's what we do on the ed tech situation room. Here are the here's these news articles and what does this mean for schools? We absolutely should be talking to students about artificial intelligence and you know, iterating around what do we do when we have access to these AIs? I mean, wh- how, what does that mean, that, you know, differently for, for school? It's, this isn't pie in the sky Jetsons maybe in a hundred years. Like in our lifetimes, if, if we, you know, get to, get to, to live out to, to 70 plus, uh, who knows? I've been reading about the whole foods diet. Maybe we can go for a hundred. Um, but you know, if we, if we're living into the next couple decades, we're living in the world of just incredible automation and AI. So I think that we've got to be looking at computer science for everyone in terms of an exposure kind of class. I think we've got to be looking at the ways in which students have, are developing computational thinking strategies and are going to be adept at using data, at creating algorithms and manipulating things, not necessarily everyone at a Python code level, but certainly at a computational thinking level where, because that's what we're going to be able to do with these AIs. And and that probably was exciting from the keynote, Google opening up access to some of their artificial intelligence, because you can go now to google.ai and there's a very compelling story of a high school student who wanted to, I think, improve um, the the MRI scanning for breast cancer. And I mean, this kid on his own learned some incredible stuff and has developed this these things. And it just that he is an outlier, right? That is not going to be 50% of the high school graduating class in you know Missoula, Bozeman, Oklahoma City, Edmond, you name the town. But the these, it is stunning. I mean, it is absolutely stunning to think about the access that we have, the way that it's democratized, and the way that literally any any student anywhere in the country who in the world who has access to the web and these kinds of open tools is going to have a pathway if they would want to follow it that can lead to some pretty incredible places. So I would say that AI piece and the fact that Elon Musk is not alone in calling for the open AI alliance because he says, you know, the scary future world is if only big tech companies and, and, and certain countries have access to powerful AIs. We are more protected when more people have access to these AIs to use them for good and not not for evil. So I haven't really checked out that website yet, but was certainly energized by that story. Absolutely. The other thing, which I'd also just point out, um, because it's another video I saw, there's a Google IO video called past, present and future of AI machine learning. And so this was a panel discussion with four amazing women, just incredible backgrounds talking about machine learning and having this historical perspective on how we've gotten to today and where we're going next. And, it is mind blowing, and it's also really, really exciting from the perspective of um, thinking about diversity in tech and coding, and having these amazing three women who've just done phenomenal things and are doing phenomenal things with AI. So I just really commend that video to folks. Have you watched any of the additional videos, Jason, beyond the keynote? 
Um, I have not yet. I have several queued up. Um, I'll be traveling a lot in the next two weeks and, and, uh, looking forward to some plane fodder with that. But, uh, lots of interesting things, um, in it. it, There were obviously things that Google released that were more PR things. There are lots of interesting sessions from the developer part of that conference as well. And so I'm looking forward to, um, looking through some of that stuff. I wanted to note one thing that was covered by a couple pieces of the tech press. Uh, Google uh, gave a couple sessions related to their, you'll notice I have a new cat now that's rubbing on my arm. Um, Lily, how you doing, buddy? Um, the, um, um, the, uh, the, the, the session on Android apps on Chromebooks, um, uh, was uh, very interesting. I did listen to about 20 minutes of that and it was, it was pretty technical and, and some of it was a little over my head, but the, the too long didn't read version of, of the session was that it's a lot harder than they thought it was going to be to port Android apps over to the Chromebook, um, architecture, which is why right now we have, uh, less than a dozen Chromebooks that have actually been cleared for that. And I think only five or six do it in the stable channel for the rest of them. You have to put it into the beta channel um, or developer channel to be able to access the play store on there. And I will say that even though I like it and I now own a Chromebook that has uh, that ability, it's still pretty wonky and it crashes a lot. And some of the apps look absolutely terrible. And in fact, that's one of the things they said about, um, the challenge of porting over Chrome apps, I'm sorry, Android apps to the Chromebook architecture is that the developers of a lot of Chrome apps made sloppy mistakes early on in developing that they haven't gone any cleaned, which means that when they move towards a tablet size screen or a larger screen or they add a keyboard or mouse, which should be fairly effortless based on uh, what Google would say are their standards for developing Android apps. A lot of developers have not done that. Uh, now, a lot of developers have. For example, you have to hack your Chromebook to do this. Um, and I did it once and then immediately wiped it because it was too unstable. But the PowerPoint and Word apps, Android apps, look absolutely beautiful on a Chromebook. And in fact, I would say it's the closest I've seen to a functional alternative to the desktop versions of those applications. I, I love uh, how Word and PowerPoint look on, on the iPad, how they look on a phone. Um, I think they, Microsoft's done a lot of great work there to try to make those more universal applications. They look really great on Chromebooks, but they have not allowed that, so you have to hack uh, your your Chromebook to get it put on there. But um, it's it's a really interesting phenomenon. So that's the other thing that I did uh, uh, dig a little into and found some interesting insights from Google I.O. Well, the other, I don't want to, we spent kind of all, all the time last time on Google, and, and we've got a bunch of other things to talk about, but I'm going to do kind of some shout-outs to a few other videos. Um, there's a new one, Watch Boston Dynamics Dog-Like Robot Do Party Tricks, and this is from May 19th from Tech Insider. And then the one that I saw back in February, which is also Boston Dynamics, a Google-owned um, right. you know robotics company, is called Introducing Handle. And uh, one of my favorite things teaching STEM in 2013 to 2015 was sharing curiosity links with kids to just spark their innovation or their, their, their curiosity really. And just their, their interest. And wow, these, these are definitely, you know, videos that fit into that category. The other video, and I put this under the category of, of AI. I watched this last night, DeepMind CEO, artificial intelligence invents new knowledge and teaches new human theories. This was amazing. And this is by the CEO of DeepMind. And as this, I think this is the one that was talking about uh, Go. Let me open it and check. But, you know, we had, like 20 years ago, we've had the anniversary of IBM's Deep Blue defeat of 
Gary Kasparov, I think I'm saying that right, who um, was a worldwide chess champion, and that you know they he he was defeated by a, a computer, and so uh, yeah, this this presentation is unbelievable. Um, I had a friend a couple years ahead of me in college who loved the game Go, and I. I didn't know there are 2,000 people worldwide who are professional Go players and make their full-time living playing Go. Go is way bigger than chess. And, like, when when this happened, when, um, well, it wasn't Deep, Deep Blue. Do you remember what the name of uh, AlphaGo was the name of the of the computer that Google made, um, that DeepMind made to, um, to, deep, to, you know, beat this top player? Um, you know, almost everyone in North, in South Korea was watching this. I don't know about North Korea. Their, their TV and their internet is obviously different there, but you know, like millions of people were watching this. And in Asia, the buzz and, and the thing, I, like this is one of the most interesting videos I've seen in a long time because it explains how AlphaGo was intuiting and being creative in the ways that it was responding because Go is a much less analytical, you can chart out all your moves. I mean, there are like more move possibilities than atoms in the universe or something. I mean, it's mathematics that I just don't, don't understand. Um, but this is a phenomenal video and they have also it has gone to school on itself and the ways that it's been iterating and learning and this is machine learning, right? Is, is just, it's staggering. So loved, loved that video. And um, I think you put the recode article about uh, the Google parent company alphabet has made the most AI acquisitions. Any, yes. any commentary on that and why that's significant? I, yeah. I think that, you know, that there, obviously when Google announces anything, there's hand wringing and there's, you know, uh, uh, a lot of excitement around uh, it. So both sides of, of, of the coin are covered there, but you know, Google does speak a lot um, by what they're buying. I mean, Alphabet is famous for buying companies both for their technology and also for engineers. And if they are picking up a lot of expertise or patents or uh, processes that are related to, to AI, expect that to become part of their game much more aggressively in the relatively near future. And, you know, I, I would say that that of all the big players, Google's more likely to pull it off um, in, in addition to, or I'm sorry, as, a, as opposed to just about anyone else. So if you're really looking at what the future of this looks like, I think a lot of the stuff that's announced to Google I.O. is a good preview of that. And it hinges on data, right? This is yeah. something that comes through in these videos over and over again is that part of why we're seeing such movement in machine learning and AI is because we have these platforms that are able to pour all of this information and data into yeah. the systems which can analyze. And that's really, you know, what, what drives that more than anything else. So um, I, I, I put one more Google article that I'll mention. And this was one I think we've had in the notes for a couple weeks and I just kept it in because I wanted, wanted to make sure we mentioned it. Um, it's from VentureBeat on May the 8th. NVIDIA Metropolis Video Analytics paves the way for AI cities. And there's some statistics in this article that are just, just staggering about the amount of content that is being created with video every day. Um, the estimate, uh, it says by 2020, the cumulative number of cameras is expected to rise to approximately 1 billion. Video is the world's largest generator of data captured by hundreds of millions of cameras deployed in areas such as government, property, public transit, etc. 
Um, I did just finish finally watching season one of Mr. Robot, uh, which is rated uh, M for Mature and, you know, is the one that, to watch with the kids. But boy, does that make you think about hacking and not just going to the Black Hat conference and making sure your device is turned off, but what, you know, people all over the place could be, you know, doing in terms of sniffing with devices and, and grabbing stuff. So, you know, we've, we've talked about this before, and there was the video last week from Microsoft talking about the workplace and, and, and this, you know, AI capability of being able to see what you're doing and map. You know, perhaps this was dangerous in the hospital room and, you know, Joe needs to be sitting down and not walking in the hallway. Um, or he, you know, the, me- the medication part. There's some real, real positives there. But, um, I, again, what are we doing in school with video? I love to say video is the pencil of the 21st century, and I really believe that. I think video has as much relevance or more than text in terms of educating people today and in terms of just communicating. And so I think this is a very important shift in school is that we should be not just saying to a few kids who take an elective, oh, you're the ones that will do digital media. Again, I think everybody needs to have you know, creative digital media experiences, both from the critical thinking standpoint that happens when you create the media versus just consume it, as well as just the practical of this is how more and more communication is happening today for video. Are you guys, by the way, offering any video courses with the Montana Digital Academy or what, where does, where does media fit in with what you guys do? Um, we do not only because of the struggle of trying to find, you know, the right equipment and, and websites that districts that we are serving support. That's been our largest challenge there. Like if we were completely outside of a school infrastructure and kids were bringing their own devices, it'd be pretty easy to do. But because we're so we'll be holding to that with same thing is true about things like uh, uh, web design and um, image uh, manipulation, Photoshop, uh, any of those sort of things, publishing sort of stuff. We've run into that challenge, but uh, the bottom line is, is that, you know, that I couldn't agree more. That is a, a critical part of communication. And, you know, the fact that you can, you know, uh, going back to my $150 phone, like this is a video production unit, right? So it absolutely has the capability of, uh, you know, engaging in, in those activities. And, you know, it also, when we don't talk about or, or, or come to terms with these issues, we also lose out on a lot of the ethical questions of these sorts of things and the ability to talk about, when it's appropriate to, 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 uh, uh, to record something and when it's not appropriate to record something. And I think those are all lessons that are, are, you know, not taught when we don't spend time inviting, you know, these processes into our classrooms and, uh, helping students through those somewhat challenging questions. We do have a request for you from the chat room. Peggy George is uh, wondering if you might comment uh, about the Montana politics hitting the national news tonight. We won't have to. Dive, we don't have. We don't have to do a deep dive there. But we do want to let everyone know if you're watching live um, on the YouTube, there is a, a chat on the side. It's a pop out chat, and so generally we're able to now view that along with the stream. And of course, we we haven't said this this episode, but you can access all the links and the many that we will not talk about tonight on EdTechSR.com. Slash link. So, Jason, Montana is front and center. Uh, when will you be running for the representative uh, <laughs> in, in Montana? 
not this one tomorrow, but right. Maybe soon. try to announce. So I should say I, I do have some some history. I'm into Wikipedia for this. Uh, I have run for lieutenant governor before in the state of Montana, so I do have some uh, some history of getting my butt kicked in elections here. But uh, the breaking news out of Montana tonight is that there's a special election tomorrow. It's kind of weird on a Thursday, but that's the way the calendar shook out. But um, our former, we have just one. A seat in the House of Representatives. We have an at-large seat in Montana, um, largest geographical area covered by a single seat. And we, uh, my cat is really interested in being close to me tonight. And um, it was uh, previously held by Ryan Zinke, who uh, won re-election in November uh, by a, a fairly wide margin over our former state superintendent of public instruction. And then he was tapped by the Trump administration to become the Secretary of Interior. So he was confirmed, and the minute that happened, our governor called for a special election, and it's been a really interesting 90 days because um, we didn't hold primaries. Instead, the political parties named their um, uh, named their candidates. Uh, on the Republican side, Greg Gianforte, a former software engineer that is a, a multimillionaire that lives in Bozeman, Montana, um, and I believe that he sold his software company to Aura. Or was it Boeing? Maybe it was Oracle. But he um, obviously profited greatly from that. And he was uh, challenged our governor um, in November and lost uh, the the governor's race. And so he threw his hat in the ring, was picked by the Montana Republican Party. And then Democrats had several uh, uh, pretty good candidates. They ended up picking a, a newcomer, a man by the name of Rob Quist, who's a folk singer and a kind of country rock singer, um, uh, uh won that and it was a, an election uh, by the by party folks that they had a convention that they uh, went and picked the candidate. Uh, it's been an extraordinary election. Gene Forte, based on, you know, where Montana fell electorally in November, should have had a significant advantage. Uh, polls have been tightening fairly dramatically in the last several weeks. Um, Senator Sanders from Vermont made a stop in Montana on Saturday and Sunday to stump for, for Mr. Quist. And then tonight's breaking news is that a, uh, a, a a London-based reporter for the Guardian newspaper um, was apparently body slammed by Mr. Gene Forte after he had asked uh, the reporter had asked him some questions about the release of the uh, congressional um, estimates related to the cost of Trump care that were released earlier today. And there is video of this. Um, uh, Mr. Gene Forte is a trending topic on Twitter right now. He's also a trending topic on YouTube. Um, and you can hear that audio, which has been posted to YouTube. Uh, the Gene Forte campaign claims that the reporter was super aggressive and, uh, Mr. Gene Forte was, was just defending himself, but, um, it, it's it's interesting the night before an election. So right now, apparently, there's a press conference going on in Bozeman, Montana, by the Gallatin County Sheriff's Office. The reporter was taken to the hospital, is currently um, uh, being treated. So, um, yeah, it's a little little back here. And the election is tomorrow. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Well, we, again, aren't going to just totally dive politics, but I thought it was interesting with the recent election in France and their, and their presidential election, how they have a blackout time where there's not supposed to be, you know, communication. And so like right before that blackout time was when some of these supposed hacked, you know, mail messages from one of the can, from the candidate that was defeated. Um, no, it was from the candidate that won. Anyway, it was, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. And I'll just say on an Oklahoma note, we've got our legislature meeting for the last week. 
they are they are required by the Constitution to. Well, we have a nine hundred million dollar deficit right now in our budget, and they are required to submit revenue raising initiatives five days before the end of the session. The end of the session is Friday. And so the budget literally last night was given to the the House members um, at 1130 p.m. They had 30 minutes to vote to vote on it. It didn't even have spreadsheets and and these summary things. And it's just it is so not representative democracy done well. It's incredible. And so um, I would just love to see us do a better job with our own democracy and our own, you know, our own, you know, exercise of democratic rights. There's all kinds of things happening around the world with all of this, but, you know, bring that back from a school perspective, uh, not just a school, we all need to be involved and take our responsibilities, not only as voters, but as citizens very seriously and be involved in the process because technology can make things move really quickly um, and it's, uh, you know, we just, we need very, we need, we need smart, moral people to be leading all, leading us at all levels, right? State and state and national levels. So, so yeah, that's what's going on in Montana tonight. So I've been kind of keeping a half eye on my social media feeds and Twitter's gone a buzz and some national politicians have been jumping in now. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, this election was already kind of a spectacle and now that's confirmed. All right. Well, hey, uh, what topic would you like to do next, Jason? I know I I put a, a ton in, but you want to? Um, yeah, let's go. Let's do the fake news topic because I think both you and I had dumped a link in here, and there's actually another link that that's related to this. So maybe I want to pick up on as the 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 post topic. But um, uh, interesting things of fake news, and this is an article I put in a couple of weeks ago from Lifehacker Vitals, which is the health blog from Lifehacker, and basically. Um, there is a pregnancy bot, um, and uh, the I don't exactly um, uh, understand how it works, but I think it's a Twitter-based bot that is the uh, Can I Eat This bot, um, which uh, the Can I Eat This is a, a, a fairly popular uh, web presence uh, related to nutrition. But the interesting thing about that is that a reporter from Lifehacker asked the pregnancy bot, or I'm sorry, the, the Can I Eat This bot for a, um, a number of things related to pregnancy nutrition. As it turns out, many of the things cited by the bot were just just flatly wrong. Like they had no basis in science or they were um, ex- extremely commonly uh, dispelled myths um, that it was easy to find some countering research. And uh, for me, this uh, it kind of plugs into an important thing related to digital personal assistance and Siri and Google now and Cortana. And the bottom line is, is that um, at least for the time being, a good Google search is probably going to be better than something that tries to give you a single channel answer to something when it comes to things that are either factually based, that, that have some import to them, like a question related to health, or secondarily something that could be subject to opinion. Whereas if you're getting a single answer from uh, whatever the source is, a bot, an intelligent personal assistant, et cetera, that does have some 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 potentially 
perilous implications to it. And so uh, I was really interested in that topic and, and thought it uh, is something worth worth thinking about and talking about. So I guess I'd start here, Wes. Would you trust a bot with critical medical questions? <laughs> Absolutely not. And that article uh, goes on to say several inter- interesting things. Number one, they did not consult with health or, or medical professionals in the creation of this bot. Yep. Um, the person who is the spokeswoman, spokeswoman uh, or spokesperson, you know, said that we're a technology company, not a health medical company. And what they were really wanting to do was get a splash out there to show their potential to create a bot, not necessarily to create something that was going to provide accurate information. And since that article was published on May 12th, there's a little update at the bottom that the bot has been taken offline and now has a message of we're updating our databases. So I, I think that it's important for technology companies to step up to the ethics of what they're doing. You know, Mark Zuckerberg has, was famously quoted as saying Facebook was not a media company in the election and really trying to disavow uh, initially the influence that they had upon the, the election result. And so um, I think the same kind of thing was happening here with, with this company where they're saying, we're a technology company. And it's like, but you're giving health information. Therefore, you need to take some responsibility for the accuracy of it. And we certainly need to, again, recognize it's very early days for all of this. And so I think most of the things hitting the news about bots are sort of bots, bots gone bad. You know, there was the right. Microsoft one that really quickly the bot learned to cuss and insult right. people. Hey, yeah. Yeah. So we haven't really, I haven't really seen a big headline about, you know, awesome bot answers all my technical, you know, questions when I'm troubleshooting my Mac. I mean, that, that has not happened yet. Right. Um, and then the other article, which I think that you had posted, Wes, um, was about uh, a DNC staffer's murder illustrates how conspiracy theories uh, ultimately spread fake news. Do you want to talk about that one for a bit? You bet. So, you know, one of the questions that we've been talking about for years with um, information literacy, digital literacy, is this whole idea about how are you, you know, vetting information and identifying a reliable source. And so uh, this was a report from May 22nd uh, by NPR talking about how Newt Gingrich, who we would think as a as a mainstream, like he was the former Speaker of the House, right, um, was repeating stuff about this death of a Democratic National Committee staff murder. And, you know, because he was repeating things that were found in very questionable, um, you know, Breitbart, well, Rush Limbaugh, I know that probably offends a lot of people who love Rush, but, you know, he gave it some some sort of mainstream stamp of approval. But this is a real outlier theory about how, you know, the Russians were involved in uh, his killing. And basically, the report says it's it's one of many unsolved murders in Washington. And who knows? Who knows what the connections are here? But you know, how, what, what is the advice that we give students and teachers today, Jason, about how you validate information and what to believe online? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that looking at multiple sources and uh, you not believing fantastic stories, all these are part of, of developing important strategies related to this. And the other thing that 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 the reason why I, I really want to talk about these two topics tonight is I've posted another article in that is a podcast I've listened to about a third of that um, I, I want to share tonight, but also talk about uh, the, the grander topic. There's a really wonderful um 
a, a case story of someone that's figured out a way to charge for good media. And there's a really uh, wonderful tech website called The Information, and um, there is a, a, a great thing in, in Recode um, with a, a interview with Jessica, Jessica Lesson, who is the uh, editor and owner of The Information. And uh, it's a website that charges $400 a year um, for very long form and deeply researched technology journalism. And the way you know it's made a difference is because when you listen to technology news and podcasts, they're referring to this source all the time. Um, and $400 would be expensive for any uh, media purchase um, uh, at all. Actually, if you think about, um, you know, uh, paying for Netflix, you don't pay $400 a year. If you buy the New York Times online, uh, even if you get the print edition, I don't think it's for $400 a year. So it is a, a premium price. But I think that there is a, a, a larger triangulation about the fact that we don't pay for media anymore and fake news is proliferating and social media is sharing fake news at a, an alarmingly high rate where real news or factually based news uh, uh, tends to struggle a little more when it can't utilize clickbait style headlines and the fact that we don't pay for news really anymore. And that's become a, a, a free commodity that, that, that is available to us and is processed. And there's something there. I'm not quite sure what it is, but, you know, at some point we have to find a way to evolve and, and, and create the revolution that gets us back paying for, for, for media again, get paying for journalism and paying for writing and paying for those things. There's been lots of really wonderful attempts at that. Uh, there, there's obviously uh, micropayments through through efforts like Patreon that allow creators, podcasters, writers, uh, artists to gain uh, uh, patrons for their work. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, that this I think this all kind of fits in within itself, that just paying for something doesn't add credibility to it. But if you're paying for something, you've probably vetted it before you've done that, and you can then trust the source. So, uh, um, so that, that that's something that that is maybe not a fully complete, uh, a fully baked thought, but it's what I've been thinking about in regards to we have a real problem with that. Um, and I have I have a classroom uh, application related curriculum that's a side note to that that I'll wait for a moment. So Wes, any thoughts about your know, paying for media and if that involves or is involved in this discussion at all? Absolutely, I've had a had a Twitter interaction with uh, some one of our local reporters in the last two weeks because again we're having the end of our our session and we're having you know mainstream media as well as bloggers cover things and our our one of our main news outlets for Oklahoma City's that is the Daily Oklahoman and uh, NewsOK.com is their website and they have a paywall and so some of their content is available openly but a sizable amount of it is behind the paywall and it's not a ton of um of of money to subscribe but you know like probably most people i'm pretty pretty um selective in terms of what i'm going to pay for and so i had made the comment that you know our our state deserved the this article that was about the you know education budget and things to be openly published and not to be behind a paywall um and that media outlet i mean there are there are millions of people that you know read this and and see all this and so i had put out the the guardian as an example where they're asking for contributions but they're not putting all their content behind a paywall and their their reply to that was they've been losing money for years they have a wealthy benefactor you know and and so they're not a good example um i did make a donation to the guardian this last uh, week thinking about this in part and i and i am excited you know, i'm i am glad to support journalism and so i'm not 
categorically opposed, but especially when you have a news outlet like this, the, the Daily Oklahoman, which is in Oklahoma City, we have the Tulsa World, which is pretty much the biggest one in Tulsa. These are our two biggest cities. And then the Daily Oklahoman. There's some real obligation I think they have to the public, not just to, you know, be publishing behind a paywall. So I think it's interesting that, that this website, the information is, is making a go of this. Um, I mentioned before, I think it's, it's uh, interesting to see what's happening with Patreon and the idea of micropayments. You know, something that Jason and I will, I'm sure, talk about offline some more and may at some point you know, do is look at, you know, do we want to go down that road of doing some, some kind of uh, advertisement support? And, you know, it's not like, I think any of us are going to quit our day jobs for the podcast, but these are all important topics. And they certainly are important from the, from the aspect of democracy and politics. I was watching the Washington post. That's where I saw the article, the video about the Montana election you know, and I think they there's their byline is democracy dies in darkness, basically saying we've got yep. to have the light of media shining, you know, in our communities to pre- prevent, you know, darkness from from winning the day. So I think these are hugely important issues. And hopefully we're just we will continue to see innovation and, you know, good journalism because it's vital. We can't. I do love to blog. I love to podcast. But it's not my full-time job and I'm just thrilled that we have people whose full-time job is to go out there and, and write the stories that wouldn't be out in the, in the public and in the mainstream media, part of our conversations without them. Yep, absolutely. And then I thought of one other uh, link to this broader discussion too, that's related to um, uh, the internet as a, a curriculum device. Right. And one of the things that, that I think that, that we're going to have to probably come to terms with sooner rather than later is the fact that free internet resources aren't all they aren't all what they cracked up to be. But at some point we need to find a middle ground between ridiculously overpriced textbook manufacturer created digital resources. And then on the other end of that, the free internet, which is both advertising supported, which I think it does introduce some interesting ethical questions into the classroom. And secondarily is killing journalism, right? Like the notion that news is, is supposed to be free um, is, is hurting our journalism industry in the United States. And so there's a middle ground there that I'm not sure if I ha- if I'm smart enough to figure out, but those are discussions I think we're going to be having in the coming days and weeks, months and years. Um, uh, about where where are we finding stuff? Like, what are we what are we able to do? Can we let kids out to the free internet to research? The difference between that commercial databases and commercially available tools, yada yada yada. And I think there's a, a larger question here we're going to have to come to terms with. Uh, probably not within the half an hour we have uh, <laughs> or the hour we do a week in the podcast. There's the sound the sound of the new cat. So how many yes. cats do you guys have? Just two, two cats and a dog. Okay, very good. Well, um, I, I want to get to the top of the, of the links because this is one I've kept in the show notes for several weeks and haven't mentioned. And this is under the, the topic of uh, genomics and biotech. And both, both of these articles are pretty amazing. Um, the TechCrunch article from May 3rd says, scientists have eliminated HIV in mice using CRISPR. And if you are not familiar with CRISPR, um, there's really some great radio lab podcasts that you can go back to. They revisited this in the last couple months. CRISPR is this technology that allows geneticists and medical professionals to go into DNA and to snip out parts that are problematic and then 
I, this is, I'm going to sound like I know what I'm talking about. I've just listened to radio lab podcasts and I stayed at a holiday Inn express in the last month. Um, it allows for the, 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 uh, the DNA sequence that they want to, uh, to basically be in the same area and then enzymes and stuff, put it together and fix it. And so there's really tremendous hope for Parkinson's and for all these different kinds of things to be cured. Well, this, this is astounding to think that they've eliminated HIV, you know, in mice using this kind of technology. And this, this, this also has the Frankenstein element, right? You know, when is Jurassic Park coming for real? Because, or, you know, and we're going to have hybrid, you know, cats and dogs and who knows what's going to happen. But that, that is mind blowing. And then this article, which I have never heard of this source before, but it, this is attributed on the DARPA website. So I got another link to this too. This is from Mike, MIC on May 1st, 2017. The military wants to hack your brain to make it easier for you to, you, to learn languages. I have a little bit of insight into this because actually one of my former debate partners, uh, one of the smartest people I've ever known, uh, who, who has a dual doctorate in philosophy and cognitive neuroscience and worked for DARPA, the, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, as his last assignment in active duty. He works for Lockheed now. Um, he, he was a project manager. And what the project managers do is they have millions of dollars and they have different initiatives. And so they'll put this money out and have people bid for it. And I forget what they're called. They're called, uh, they're not called competitors. But anyway, what... Let me read this. The, the DARPA has doled out more than 50 million to, res to fund research that could potentially hack your brain to facilitate learning. The new prod program called Targeted Neuroplasticity Training will explore electrical stimulation of the nervous system to find safe ways to make la learning languages easier. And it goes on to say that when they stimulate not only parts of the brain, but parts of your spinal cord and other parts of your body, they think that it can increase the neuroplasticity of your brain and your actual ability to memorize and learn and retain information. I mean, this makes me kind of think of like psych wards where they're doing electroshock therapy, but this is, you know, supported research that's happening in, in research institutions now in the country. And they're looking, no, they're, the, the, the people that, that are working for these project managers are called performers. And so they're looking for their performers to, um, you know, have an improvement of 30% in, in language learning. Language learning is really important to the military. I've had multiple friends, you know, go up to, uh, Monterey, California, where they've got this amazing language institute. And, you know, we, we had strategic languages at the Air Force Academy. I, I was a Spanish guy. That's not a strategic language, but strategic languages are Arabic, are Russian. Um, the, uh, Pakistani language of Urdu, a friend here in Oklahoma City that, that signed up and enlisted, you know, went off to Monterey and got trained in all that and has done signals intelligence stuff, listening in on Urdu. So anyway, the military is very interested in this. From a school standpoint, this is pretty, you know, pretty big too, right? How, how do we improve learning? So I just, this, this to me is like science fiction, but it's happening today. And I've mentioned before, um, the, uh, the book that, uh, talks about DARPA, it's called the Pentagon's brain. And, uh, let me see if I can pull her name out really quick. Um, you know, she says in the book, uh, Annie, Annie Jacobson is the author that DARPA is about 10 to 20 years ahead of where we are as consumers. So this is an example of it. We're not going to see this in schools tomorrow, but wow, it, it just blows my mind. So Jason, are you ready to sign up for electrical stimulation of your neurological, you know, 
body to <laughs> make you speak Swedish in two weeks so you'll be totally, you know, fluent and ready for the trip. I'm ready. Sign me up. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm happily would take the cartridge, uh, Swedish cartridge to my brain to, to speak the language. And, you know, like I, um, I, honestly, I don't, I don't think we could prepare for this in schools because it's just so radical that, you know, and we certainly want to sit around thinking, man, do I not eat? I don't eat algebra now. Just, I'll just plug in the algebra cartridge and be good to go. Um, but the bottom line is that, you know, this, this changes pretty much everything. So, you we know, need, and, and we, it, we need to educate folks to be ready for flexible careers. Yeah, and and yeah. again, to bring in the, the ethics side, you know, to have character education and ethics. So I'm, I'm not positive. Well, I don't know when this will happen, but I think I'm, I'm going to formally ask at our school if at some point I can help with a STEM ethics portion of one of our computer science classes. Uh, we're talking about doing some intercession classes and we change our schedule hopefully in the next year or so. But, um, yeah, how do you prepare for this? Well, it's hopefully by, you know, helping students be able to adjust and, and able to, um, you know, make make good choices and, and have – uh, ethics part of, of their framework as they, as they look at what they're going to do with these incredible tools, because yeah, between CRISPR and, and things like, like this DARPA project, um, I don't know that, that definitely, that is something that fits kind of more into a Ian Jukes might've, might've shared that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago or however long he's been on the circuit, you know, the future is going to blow your mind. You know, I think that kind of, it fits into that category. It's probably not immediately useful, but certainly it would certainly make a good writing prompt. So we can say that. So yep, absolutely. For a new writing prompt to write up to finish up the year. Well, is there a quick one we could do, Wes? Um, really quick, let's talk about Microsoft and Apple. Uh, Microsoft right. has unveiled the new Surface Pro, um, Apple Insider, May 22nd. I just watched a, a video about it. Looks very Apple-like in terms of its marketing. Um, you know, it still runs Windows, so that's not personally exciting to me. But um, Apple is rumored to be updating their MacBooks at WWDC. That's coming up here, I think, June 6th through the 9th. Um, possible MacBook Air and Pro refreshes. Um, did you do the Verge article about the big bet on the Surface family? Um, I did, as a matter of fact. And um, it, it's really interesting to me that Microsoft did um, – you know, did uh, apparently try to push out all of their product lines before Apple was able to introduce anything uh, new. And the reason why this is, is interesting to me from a school standpoint is I do feel like the Surface laptops that are coming out, the ones that run Windows 10 S, uh, they might have been, or they might be available early enough to make some purchasing cycles um, for schools this coming fall. I can't imagine that there will be wide adoption of Surface 10S uh, devices quite yet because I, I think that the um, platform needs to, to be tested and, and proven before it works in that direction. But um, I think it does kind of help highlight that, uh, you know, Apple is just not evolving the way they used to. And maybe it's because Microsoft had more to catch up on, which I do think is true, that I think from a device standpoint, they're new to the device game, and the first couple of, of releases weren't super great, and so it took them a while to, to evolve and innovate in that space, and they're getting to, to find their stride. But, um, you know, I, I don't think Apple's dead. They're still selling a lot of iPhones. I think the iPad's a challenged platform, and I think um, – uh, the laptop uh, desktop space is also su substantially challenged. 
Um, I have to jump in here with, with a video link that Peggy shared, and I watched it right before our show. Um, it's titled Interview with Angela Arentz. I may not be saying her name right. She's Senior VP of Apple Retail. Last time we mentioned that Apple, or maybe it was two shows ago, um, Apple has looking at having Teacher Tuesdays and making their Apple retail stores like places to hang out. And this 11-minute video from LinkedIn really goes in depth with that, like how, you know, I forget how they term it, but it's like Armageddon thinking in malls, you know, because people are are buying on Amazon, right? They're not going to the mall. And her, and her statement in that is, you know, they used to think in a mall you needed 20% experience, 80% buying. Well, now maybe you need 80% experience, 20% buying. And so they've got, I think, four different strands. And it's interesting talking about how she mentioned Steve Jobs and this idea of wedding the liberal arts and creativity to technology, but it really is a reimagining of what an experience at an Apple store might be like. And so I think that we're going to see, we are seeing this is happening in mid May that they're going to roll out in 400 stores, uh, this whole new software and this whole new focus. And it makes me want to go down and say, Hey, are you going to have outside folks, you know, teach some things or share some things because I'm hoping it's not just going to be about here's how to make a spreadsheet in, you know, um, in, in Apple's, you know, sheets or whatever, whatever it's called numbers. Um, you know, I hope that it'll be like people in the community who are using powerful tools on, on Mac platforms and, you know, being able to share that kind of stuff too. So, um, yeah, don't, don't count out Apple and, uh, definitely it'll be exciting to see how AI, their, rumored new assistant for the home speaker product, you know, is going to fit into this and how they may, you know, have been slow to jump into some of that and, and, and probably have gone to school on what other people have done and, you know, try to try to do it better. So I'm not giving up on Apple by any means. And, you know, and I guess for me, the thing that is super interesting, and I would say now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 20% Mac, uh, 70 no, 60% uh, Windows and 20% Chrome OS as I move around my, my various devices throughout the day. And I, I like to be able to support all those devices too, which is part of the reason why I do that. But, you know, um, the bottom line is, is that um, they all exist and schools will need to acknowledge and support them all, especially if you're in a BYOD environment. But, the other key question for me is, is how hard is the plat, are these three platforms working to make sure the technology, good, um, useful technology is in kids' hands? And I'm hoping that however the, 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 the battle royale between Microsoft and Apple ends up, it ends up in more devices being available for kids. And it feels like both of them are, are, are mostly headed in that direction. Absolutely. Well, we probably covered half of half of the articles. Yeah. Well, um, just think of it this way: we already have a start on a future episode. So, uh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll just be moving moving these hacking security, and the sky is falling. So, I didn't wear my tinfoil hat tonight. <laughs> we, so we need to we need to get a set of those for the, for the I, podcast. So. I'm gonna see if I can get one. <laughs> All right. Well, do you want to do some geeks of the week? Sure, that'd be great. Okay, I'll go quick. Um, this one is a fun app called Burstio for iOS, and one of the cool things that I've done on my iPhone for fast moving action is just held down the button and that shoots a ton. It's, it's like having a, 
uh, motor drive on your old SLR camera. You know, I think the, the, in the day, the Nikon F3 could shoot like six frames a second or something like that. And you'd, you'd see pictures that one, you know, 200th or 4,000th with the hummingbirds, you know, wings or the, the balloon being burst by the dart or whatever. Um, that's more, that's also saying shutter speed, but it takes a lot of pictures. But what do you do with that? So Burstio is not free. I think it's like three bucks. But we went to the air show this weekend on Saturday, saw the Air Force Thunderbirds perform, very cool and exciting, and actually managed to take a selfie with my daughter with the air, with the Thunderbirds behind, which was fun. But um, they did a, a pretty, you know, obviously amazing, you know, close passes by the crowd. And so they were doing this, these knife edge passes. And so I held, held down the button and, you know, shot all this. And Burstio makes an animated GIF. So it takes about, in this case, 25 different separate images and then makes that into a little animated GIF, which I guess you can't really save to your photo roll because the photo roll on um, iOS doesn't support animated GIFs. But you can share it to Facebook, share it to Twitter and, uh, that's kind of cool. So that was that's my app of the week. And then I like to share. Um, I, I've kind of turned into shopping guy on uh, on our podcast. But uh, one of the tips that I've used, uh, if you go to Amazon and look for something like a, a, a micro SD cable or a Lightning cable to charge your your Apple products, one of the things that's a big challenge of that is that obviously Amazon has reviews and that's great, right? It can help you uh, find duds from non duds. But if you're buying particularly electronic equipment, uh, cables, accessories from Amazon, and you're just getting the cheapest one and, and not minding whether or not it's a legitimate product or well-made, you can really get in trouble. And one of the things that I've used for that, especially when I'm helping other people purchase items that, that don't want to go through and do the research, is something called Amazon Basics Products. And Amazon uh, has a group of, of uh, branded items, uh, uh, tons of electronic accessories, cables, uh, uh, chargers, that sort of thing that you can pick up from Amazon uh, well under the, the super name brand products. And to give you an example of that, you've probably seen there's a lot of these kind of gray felt uh, uh, laptop sleeves that are available on Amazon. I've been working on uh, what I will be carrying with me to Sweden um, as, as part of my luggage, and these happen to be on super duper sale. It was, this one was one ninety nine, uh, discounted from nineteen ninety nine, and so they're probably trying to clear out a product before they got a new edition in. But uh, it's it's wonderful. They are branded Amazon, which I don't particularly care about, and I've recommended uh, cables to family when they're looking for you know extra chargers or extra uh, lightning cables. For for example, to uh, charge uh, iPhones or iPads. And I don't worry about it when I send links to the Amazon basic products because, uh, you know, they, they do take brand recognition and and uh, sense of value very seriously. So Amazon basic products is a link in the show notes tonight. Um, and it's what I particularly recommend to family members that are looking for you know, where to buy cheap cables and such. Awesome. Sounds good. Yes, you are, you are the shopping guy. So rumor has it you may be, uh, maybe out for a little bit, but we're going to try to have some guests on the show. Um, thank you to Marta as well as Peggy for joining us live. Marta in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, making the international in the EdTech situation room be a reality. Um, although we're sure there's some other folks out there listening as well. We're up to, uh, about 450 daily, um, Oh, hits, I guess, from Amazon statistics on, on our podcast. So we would love to hear from you if you want to reach out to us on Twitter at edtechsr.com. Are you still there? 
I'm still here. Are we done? <laughs> no, we can we can we can do the outros too. I'm sorry. I, I was that, that, that so sounds so it sounds so final. Um, well, hey, <laughs> this is the EdTech Situation Room podcast where we had an awkward pause tonight, and um, you can find us here on Wednesday nights at nine o'clock Central, eight o'clock Mountain Time. Uh, we love it when people join us live. The chat room is a, a great part of, of of our presence and, and interaction with with folks that listen to the podcast. Um, of course, you can find us on all the podcast apps, wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, which includes Stitcher. Um, in fact, I have yet to find a podcast app that doesn't contain a tech SR of the four or five of them that I've utilized. And so we're in a database somewhere, so you can find us there. Or you can go to our website at techsr.com where you can find the latest episodes, links to the YouTube videos, and of course, every link we feature on the show. So my name is Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy in fabulous Missoula, Montana. I also blog at the NCCE Tech Savvy Teacher blog, blog.ncc.org. You can find me online on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach. And Wes, why don't you bring us out? So I am Wes Fryer, W. Fryer on Twitter. I am on Mastodon, so you can find me there if you go to about.me slash W. Fryer. And my blog, speedofcreativity.org, will be a little busier as we gear up for the summer. Looking forward to attending the ISTE conference. And I will also be uh, helping uh, f- co-facilitate an iPad media camp in Jackson Hole, Wyoming at the end of June with my wife. And so iPadMediaCamp.com on Twitter, iPadMediaCamp will be having some good updates as I work on, and we work on some badge-based iPad skills that we're going to be doing for this summer. Um, and I also would like to give a shout-out to Stephen Hurley. Stephen Hurley has a wonderful uh, podcast network up in Canada and has graciously been uh, rebroadcasting our EdTech SR shows there. And I think he may be caught up. So it was it was happening a little bit more recently, and I think he might, might have caught up. But thank you all so much for tuning in and reach out to us. Let us know if there's a topic you'd like us to cover. And we want to encourage everyone out there to use a password manager and share EdTech SR because both of those are great things that will just the ripple effects will just keep going and going in your life if you'll do those things. And good night. <laughs>